You're listening to The Nerve, an English and Arts podcast from SETU. I'm your host, Dr. Jenny O'Connor. Today, we're chatting remotely to Daniel Mulhall, one of a select group of people to recently receive an honorary doctorate from SETU. Born in Waterford, he is a former ambassador of Ireland to Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, Germany, the United Kingdom and the United States. Not only that, but he became a global distinguished professor in Irish studies at New York University in 2022 and moved from there to fulfil the Parnell Fellowship in Cambridge and on to the Institute of Politics at Harvard University. Daniel has published a number of books, his most recent two being 2022's Ulysses, A Reader's Odyssey and A Pilgrim's Soul, W.B. Yeats and the Ireland of His Time, which was published in December 2023. So, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you. Um, And I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit, first of all, about what it was like growing up in Waterford um, and your relationship to the city? Well, it was great. I had a a very good uh, childhood. My relationship to the city is extraordinarily strong uh, because um, my parents were both uh, born in Waterford, spent all their lives in Waterford, were very proud Waterford people. My father was a big supporter of Waterford Soccer Club. Um, I used to go to games with him all over the country when I was a boy, uh, traveling to away games in different places around the country. So I got to know Ireland uh, in the back of my father's car as we drove to football games. Um, uh, And... um, and of course, um, three of my four grandparents were born in Waterford. Uh, the fourth one was born in Dublin, but moved to Waterford in the 1920s and never went back and uh, became very strongly Waterford, drove a bus uh, in Waterford. So it was quite a well-known figure, was a member of the of the Operatic Society uh, and was really a very proud Waterford man, though he had been born in Dublin. And then all my five siblings uh, are all still based in Waterford. So... Whenever I come back to Ireland, I always um, make it back to Waterford. And uh, now that I'm a freeman of the city and uh, have an honorary doctorate from SETU, that strengthens my links further. And uh, I will continue to come to Waterford on a regular basis uh, to connect with the people I know and love in the city. I've also done some work with the Chamber of Commerce and some mentoring for them with some Waterford business people. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm generally a, a, a proud Waterford man. And I take the view that Irish people have two identities. Uh, we have our, our Irish identity. We also have our county identity, which I think is generated significantly by uh, the GAA and our allegiance to our, uh, to our local hurling and uh, football county teams, uh, which I think is a good thing. Not every country has the same um, depth of, of local identity, but we certainly have it in Ireland. And it's something that I think we can be quite happy about and quite proud of as I am. Yeah, and you you referred to that honorary doctorate um, a minute ago and you were in very prestigious company receiving that honorary doctorate from SETU. Um, Just the other recipients were Claire Keegan, Henri Dupuyer, Carrie Crowley and Maris Manning. Um, So you said, you know, that being a freeman of the city really meant something to you. What was it like on the day receiving that honour? It was wonderful uh, because, of course, I have to confess, I have honorary doctorates from other universities, uh, Liverpool University, Newman University in Philadelphia and Chatham University in Pittsburgh. But there's nothing like being recognized in your own home place. And especially as my entire family were able to come, including my two aunts who are now in their 80s and were just so delighted to be part of this ceremony. So for me, that made it um, extra special. One of my aunts came to me and said, she said, 
I've been at a lot of your events around the world when you've been ambassador, but he said, this was really very special. So for her, and I thought that moved me because I felt if my 80 plus year old aunt feels that way, and she had been after all in London for my presentation of credentials uh, when I was ambassador to the United Kingdom. And so for her to say that that event in Waterford was a special occasion for her meant a lot to me because it brought home to me how important it was to uh, to my family and therefore to me. And those events really are really so important, aren't they, to fa- family members? And what's interesting as well is, you know, sometimes parents ask us about uh, what what is the value of an arts degree? Um, I know you studied literature and history at UCC and it seems to have been quite formative in terms of how you've approached your role as a diplomat. Um, you know, I think that might be, well, how would you convince those parents maybe that it is a very valuable foundation? Well, of course, um, if you look at America, which is a very successful country, uh, not fully, but in many ways, it's, it's, a leading, it's a leading world power. It's a very powerful economy. Uh, most, almost all American students in their primary degree do art. In fact, all of them do arts courses. In fact, in, in places like Notre Dame University in Indiana, uh, in Georgetown, in Washington, D.C., uh, all undergraduates have to do two theology courses because these are Jesuit universities and they have to do two philosophy courses. So the American idea is that your undergraduate training is a kind of a general uh, educational foundation and then you go on and specialize afterwards. Now, in, in Ireland, we have a different sort of system. But nonetheless, I know from experience that people with arts degrees, with degrees in history and literature can do anything because, you know, not, I mean, obviously, if you're going to do a, a technical job, you probably should have a a, a, a degree that, Relates that, but most most jobs that you can think of are not jobs that require you to have a technical knowledge of a particular field of of study. So I think an arts degree gives you a general education, and for example, it teaches you to write and to think and to um, um, to, uh, to muster information and evidence and and present it. So when I was a senior official, say in the Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin. I might be asked at short notice to write a brief for the minister on a meeting that suddenly had come up the following morning, and that might be six o'clock in the evening. So I couldn't, you know, refer it to my staff to write the report for me. I'd have to write it myself. And therefore, the skill of a historian and a, a literary person is is very useful in that regard to be able to say, okay, here are the arguments that I want to muster, and then to be able to put them down in clear, accessible prose. That is the skill that I think is is relevant across the board, no matter what you're doing. And including, I think, for scientists and engineers, they ought to be able to express themselves clearly, and the best ones clearly can. I mean, you think of the some of the best scientists are people who are able to write books for the general public about the subject that they um are part of, but they're able to present it in a way that makes it come alive for the general reader. So the skills that you learn uh, in the arts and humanities, to me at least, have a value that goes across the board and is perfectly relevant to a whole range of, of careers. Obviously, if you want to be a doctor, you need to study medicine. If you want to be an engineer, you need to study engineering. But there are so many jobs in today's world are jobs that don't require that kind of technical knowledge. What they require is a general education and the ability to, to, you know, to master complex issues and to present information in a clear and accessible fashion. 
Yeah, and I think as well, you've used, you know, the fact that Ireland has this rich literary history so well as in your diplomacy as well. I mean, would you like to tell us a little bit about that, about how important that has been to the way that you've done your job? Yeah, well, you know, just to give you one example, and there are many I could give you, but the one I give you is a relevant one, I believe, in that when I went to Germany in 2009, Ireland was in the doghouse in terms of the German public and German impressions of Ireland were that we were this people that had um, enjoyed the Celtic tiger a bit too much. We, we, you know, we'd overindulged ourselves and sure enough, we'd come to grief and our economy had crashed. And now we were coming to the Germans looking for them to bail us out. And why should they bail out these people who had you know, behaved uh, foolishly during the boom and were now suffering from a bust? So I had to argue the case for Ireland to say, look, there's more to Ireland than just the banking problems. We have a sound economy and so on. But one of the one of the methods I used was I used literature and history to get across my message to the Germans. So, for example, uh, myself and my deputy, who's now our ambassador in Mexico, we decided to declare a year of Yates in Germany. Now, this was uh, just our own invention. It had nothing that no other authority <laughs> other than the fact that we declared it. So we had a little exhibition of about 25 pop-ups on Yates. And we offered those pop-ups to universities all over Germany. I think I I visited between 10 and 20 universities during that year. And I gave talks on Yates and opened the exhibition. And I would get maybe hundreds of people would come in some cases, but certainly always good numbers turned up to listen to me talk about Yates. And I would always start my my talk by saying, by the way, you may be reading the papers and seeing stuff about Ireland in the mo- at the moment in the papers about our banks, about our economy, tanking and so forth. Here's the story. And I would give them a two-minute spiel on Ireland. And I would say, you know, okay, we have banking problems, but we have them under control. Our economy is fundamentally sound. We have a strong export-oriented business sector. We have huge investment in Ireland. Our people are highly educated, well able to recover from this setback. We'll be fine. Don't you worry. And, you know, and then I would go on and talk about Yates. And I would also, whenever I was going down, uh, I'd always call the people I was going to in what was called the Anglistic Department, the English Department. And I would say to them, would you mind introducing me to your um, business department, to your um, economics department? And I would usually call on them as well. So I would meet not just the literary scholars that I would talk to in the afternoon, but in the morning, I would meet the local uh, professor of economics, professor of business studies. And these are people that were going on local radio, commenting on the Irish economy. So I felt it was important to talk to them, to get a message across to them. But my, you know, my calling card, my, you know, my passcode for getting in the door to those people was the fact that I was doing a favor for the university by holding a public, a public event that even that would bring people into the local community. As you know, all universities want to have the local community engaged in their activities. So I was doing a favor for the university and therefore they would do a favor for me by listening to me talk about the Irish economy to their expert who maybe the following day might be on local radio in, in, in um, Stuttgart talking about the Irish economy and the crisis in the Eurozone. And I would have a chance to influence that person, you know, the day before. So that, that, that is an example, I think, of how, how sometimes... Uh, literature gets you in the door and then you have to of course use your presence in the room to present the Irish case as effectively as you can and you know um, 
every year of my career since 1999 in Edinburgh, I would hold a Bloomsday event. And I would have, I mean, I would have, coming to that event in America, I would have members of the Supreme Court. I would have senators. I would have congressmen. They'd all turn up because it was a fun evening. And you could get across a little message about Ireland as well at that stage. So I, I was able to use literature. I'm sure other colleagues would use different methods. Uh, the thing about diplomacy is that there's no formula for it. You know, it, you have to be, you have to take the task at hand and make it your own. And you have to use your own strengths to get to do the job the best way you can do it. And I'm, I always say to my successors, don't follow my example. Don't do exactly what I do. Find your own way. Here's what I did. Here's my advice to you. Here's the conclusions I draw from my four years in country X, but you have to draw your own conclusions. I always say to people as well, if at the end of the four years that you're here replacing me, if you have exactly the same contacts as I had, you failed. If you have none of my contacts, you've also failed. If you have a mixture of my contacts that you've developed further and your own contacts that you've developed, that's the job you have to do. I always gave that advice to my colleagues when they came. Don't just slavishly follow your predecessor, but don't ignore them either. They've done valuable work. Build on that work and make it, make it your own and then take it further. So when you pass on the baton to your successor, you'll be able to give them a, a job that you've done, which they can then take forward and make their own in their own particular way. Absolutely. It's fascinating, actually, to hear it from from that perspective. It's really, really interesting. And were you, you know, when you when you took up your role in NYU, um, did you bring any of those stories to the table? I mean, I know your your course was called Literature as History and you it featured Joyce and Yeats and Singh, amongst others. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. What, what was it like teaching in that environment? Did you bring your diplomacy into your teaching as well? Or was it much more of a kind of, a, 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 you know, literature and, and history yeah, course? Well, I, mean, I mean, obviously, I, I am who I am. And my experience as a diplomat does kind of sit on my shoulders and I don't want to get rid of it. It's there. It's part of me. So, yeah, I did bring that into the classroom. But I also saw it as an opportunity. I'd always been interested in being an academic and teaching at a university. So for me, it was a great thrill to go into a classroom. And particularly as it was my own course, I developed the course, I um, set the reading um, for the students, I assessed it myself. So that, that whole course was my course. And I, I, I really enjoyed that dealing with students. Um, you know, I, I obviously like, like most academics, I, I had uh, weekly hours when the students could come and see me. So I had one-to-one. I also had a master's student that I that, that I supervised one to one. It was a sort of some independent research and, and supervised her master's thesis, and then uh, had to assess that as well. So I, I suppose I enjoyed the academic teaching part of that period in my life, and I was I was I was conscious of a need to not to get rid of my experience, but not to have it dominate. I didn't go in there, you know, as a diplomat. I went in there as a in my mid sixties as a, as an academic for the first time teaching a course for the first time. So I said to the students, I said, you are my Guinea pigs. You know, you are the first, <laughs> well, you're the first students I've ever taught. I mean, I taught before I was a tutor in Cork and at Murdoch university in Western Australia. And I had given lectures and, and seminars and so on all over the world over the last 40 years. But it was my first time having an actual class of students that I could relate to individually. And some of them were excellent students, by the way. And I really enjoyed 
that experience where I brought my diplomatic experience into play more fully was at Harvard University, where the Institute of Politics there is an extracurricular activity, but it's for students who are uh, ambitious about going into public life, going into politics, going into diplomacy, going into some area of public life. And so uh, the course I taught there was called um, Can the Centre Hold? And that was about the way in which the center ground in politics has been undermined in recent times, why that's happened and how, why the center should be held together and how it can be done. So that was, that was kind of drawing more or less exclusively on my experience of being involved in political activities. I mean, not as as a politician, but as a diplomat observing the political process for 40 years and also being involved in international relations during that time. So there, I think I brought um, my experience fully to bear on the teaching I did at Harvard University uh, in that course on on, um, the center ground in politics and international relations. Mm, But even a a literary allusion there, I suppose, as well. Um, In fact, I I started the course (laughs) by reading uh, the second coming uh, and telling them about the second coming and why it, that had inspired me to to teach this course. And then at the end, I actually quoted from Seamus Heaney's The Cure at Troy, uh, believe that a farther shore is, believe that, that uh, believe in a future on, on the far side of revenge, believe that a farther shore is reachable from here, believe in, so I, I sort of said that is the kind of future we have to hope for, a future where we can make hope and history rhyme. I said to them, that's the challenge for your generation is to 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 overcome these um, terrible um, um, partisan um, atmospherics that we have at the moment and to, mm. to somehow conjure up a future on the far side of revenge uh, where a farther shore can be reached. And the question is, I said to them, it's your job to decide where that shore will be. So I, so I, so, so I bookended my, um, my lectures, my talks with Yeats at the beginning and then Heaney at the end. Fantastic. And I'm sure there are future leaders in that group, you know, that you'll see emerging over the next year, few years. Well, I mean, uh, I have to tell you that um, three of the alumni from that course uh, are, are currently very prominent in American politics. There is Pete Buttigieg. Oh, yes. The transport secretary. There is Vivek Ramaswamy, who made a rather um, exotic run for president and is now supporting Donald Trump. And there was Elise Stefanik, who is the number two Republican in the House of Representatives and who is probably the favorite to be Donald Trump's candidate for the vice presidency uh, later this year. So uh, the track record of that uh, institute is very, very strong indeed. Now, um, and I, I think some of my students certainly, uh, I'm still in contact with them. They, they, you know, they're encouraged to maintain contact. I had contact with three of them last week alone. So uh, they're encouraged to maintain contact with their mentors. And so I, I reckon I'll be, I'll be um, connecting with these kids for the rest of my days because they'll always come to me. They, you know, they believe that they can learn something from me. And, and in fact, one of them, believe it or not, uh, he has set up uh, an NGO and this summer, He's going to go around America in a van with a friend of his, and they're going to, they're going to connect with ordinary Americans and find out how a center ground can be built. Wow! And that is inspired by the course that uh, that I taught, and uh, I spoke to him last week and gave him some advice on on how he might go about this task. So 
Um, he's a kid that I, I think I'll, we'll be seeing more of. He's a very bright kid. And, and uh, you know, the fact that he set up this, this, his own NGO <laughs> to go around the country and visit all 50 American states and connect with ordinary Americans and tell their stories. Oh, order, that's, yeah, order, that's very encouraging. In order to underline the values that unite America. And it's called Crossroads USA, I think it's called. So he's got, I, I, I think this will, I think somebody, some CNN or someone will pick this up and probably, you know, turn it into something bigger than what he's, uh, uh, what he's currently planning. Because it's a really bright idea and he's a very bright kid and it will do very well. Wow, that's incredible. And why, I mean, was it, was it over there that you, you wrote uh, the book on Ulysses or where did you start no. to write that? Well, no, the book on Ulysses, I, I, I wrote in America uh, while I was ambassador. Um, I, I wrote it mainly at midnight. Uh, I, I have a good battery, uh, happily. That's one of, my, one of my strengths that I can keep going for a long time and I don't mind coming home in the evening and then writing something at you know, 10 o'clock at night. Um, no, what happened there was that I was traveling around America and obviously as part of the job, you, you, know, you visit universities and they always take you, in America especially, take you to their rare books collection, right? And all the good universities have fantastic rare book collections because they have fantastic philanthropy. They can, they can generate huge amounts of money from their alumni. And so I kept seeing the original um, edition of Ulysses. Everywhere I went, there were they had at least one copy and maybe more, right? So I said, well, wow, this is amazing that these universities, these very prestigious places, they really value Irish literature and they are, you know. And, and then, of course, I, I also went to the, to the Rosenbach Library in Philadelphia, which is not well known outside of America, but it's where the original manuscript of Ulysses is located. Uh, the Rosenbach, the founder of the Rosenbach Library bought the manuscript in the 1920s, and it's, it's now their prized possession, and they have a museum built around Ulysses, and every year they close the street outside and they have 10 hours of readings from Ulysses peppered with songs and music and so on. But it's a fantastic occasion. And I spoke at that every year I was there. I was one of the readers of Ulysses for that wonderful um, gathering of, of enthusiasts uh, on the streets of Philadelphia. So I started to think, well, hey, maybe I should do something to, to sort of help Americans to understand Ulysses. So I started writing a blog and I wrote the blog. And I think by... 2020, when the pandemic started, I probably, I probably covered about 10 or 12 episodes of, of the 18. And when the pandemic came, as you know, as we all know, we all went from having frenetic lives, <laughs> being out seven nights a week, to having no lives that were basically homebound. And we were in every night for the best part of a year. So I was able to, the time, the evenings that I would normally have been out, um, doing stuff as ambassador, I was at home and I said, okay. So I then started pushing and, and I finished the, you know, the blog. Um, and then I said, okay, that was in sort of 20, I finished it by about early 2021. And then I, I got a contract from um, New Island Books to turn the blog into a, uh, into a book. And between early 2021 and sort of, September, but that, that eight months, I, I actually uh, put, I, I turned the blog in, into a book. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a hell of a challenge because I, I remember the last weekend, I had to have it in by Tuesday. And it was, it was a long weekend. It was, a, it was a long weekend in America. It was, it was probably the Labor Day weekend or one of those. So I, my wife and I sat down 
we started on Friday morning and we finished at midnight on, on Monday. And that was the final re-editing, proofreading and so forth. And then on the Tuesday evening at 10 o'clock, an hour before the deadline, I pressed the button and sent it off. But that weekend, the two of us spent from 7 a.m. until midnight. Just, you know, I would go through, make changes. I would give it to her. She would proofread, send it back to me. And that's the way we worked for for, for a whole weekend. We only stopped for, uh, you know, a walk around the garden <laughs> a couple of times to get some exercise and some fresh air. And other than that, it was kind of, you know, so I mean, yeah, so that was, I was really proud of that because it, cause I did it while I was working full time as ambassador. And I didn't, not a single word of that book was written during kind of normal or even extended office hours. It was all written at weekends, early in the morning or, or, or late at night. Uh, but I did it. And uh, I was glad I managed to get it out before the centenary of Ulysses publication in, um, in uh, February 2022. Yeah, it was a great, uh, it, it all aligned, didn't it? That it came out perfectly for the centenary. And it sold well. It's, you know, it's still available in the shops. And, and I saw it there, Hodges Figgis, uh, last week on this big sort of space stand of books on Ulysses. And I think every year for Bloomsday, it'll probably get a bit of a push as well. So, yeah. So I, I, I was very pleased with that. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And you did say, though, that when you went to read the book for the very first time, uh, that you you didn't read it all the way through and that you had to come back to it at a later date. So it's, it is like a refreshing way of accessing Ulysses through somebody who didn't necessarily have an academic focus upon the, the book. And that was, in a way, that's the selling point, isn't it, of the book? Yeah. I mean... I'm a kind of a, I mean, among kind of normal readers, I'm an academic. Among academics, I'm a normal reader. So I, I, I kind of, I think I've found a little niche between the, you know, the, the really popular books that sell a lot, but are maybe not highly regarded and the academic books that don't sell at all, uh, but are are deeply impressive. And I, I say, I said in that book, I said it again in my Yates book, I really admire the way that academics can sort of delve into uh, texts and, and find the hidden depths. I, I'm maybe too superficial for that. And I, I tend to sort of stay closer to the surface. And what I'm interested in is, is context rather than text. And I think that's a, that's a valid way of doing things. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I know that, I mean, I think there are, there are three forms of literary writing literary criticism there's you know people who look at the text for whom the text is everything and then you've got people who look at you know character and um and 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 theme which is i think what maybe most normal readers are interested in but for me the context is everything i i i i approach history through the land of literature and i approach literature through the land of history so i'm essentially a historian who doesn't like dusty archives and therefore finds that literature is a fantastic way of accessing the past because it's all published. You know, Joyce's letters are published. Yeats's letters are published. His diaries are published. Everything he's ever written, more or less, is now in print somewhere. And you you can Mm -hmm. find it either in a library or online. I was fortunate enough that I was, I mainly wrote my Yeats book when I was at Cambridge. And of course, I had access to Cambridge University Library, which is every book you could imagine, um, you know, about Yeats or anything else you might want to look into. And then, of course, I was at Harvard 
uh, for a little while. I did the final proofreading at Harvard, and I was able, if I had a, you know, if I if I had a a um, a, a footnote I wanted to check, which I did in the end, I, I could go over to the Harvard Library and find the book, you know, there and then. So I was very fortunate in that regard that I was in a that I was in places which had fantastic libraries uh, where you know I was able to access any book I could ever imagine that I would want. Mm. And and was that a, a kind of a less frenetic experience writing the WB Yeats book then? Um, yeah, you know, it, yeah. you had more time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I like I started it like before I did the Joyce book, I started, I'd written the first few chapters of the Yeats book probably when I was in London or maybe it was even Germany like 10, 15 years ago. I wrote about three chapters and then I just couldn't, I couldn't keep it going. I just couldn't, I, I was busy and I just couldn't, couldn't do it. So I put it aside. Um, and then when I was thinking about my next project, uh, when the Ulysses book uh, came out, I, I started thinking, well, you have the centenary of Yeats' Nobel Prize in 2023. So maybe I'll aim to get a book published at the end of 2022, which is what I, uh, which is what I did. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, um, I mean, sorry, 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 sorry. I, I got the dates wrong. Um, Yeats' Nobel Prize, of course, was in December, 2023. So I wanted to get it published in the autumn of 2023, which is what I did. So, so it came out in November officially, but it was, but it was available in, in time for the centenary of Yeats' Nobel Prize. And, and of course, for me as a, as a non-academic who is a certain age and doesn't have 10 years to, um, devote to a book. Uh, for me, a centenary is an important um, uh, discipline because it means you have to get the book done. So I'm not, tr- I wasn't trying to write the ultimate book on Yeats. Mm-hmm. I was trying to write a book that would be very good, useful to normal readers, but which wouldn't take 10 years to write and which I could finish in time to meet the centenary deadline of uh, December 2023, which is what I did. Mm. Oh yeah, but I mean, I, I, so I, I had three chapters, but I, I totally rewrote those and I totally changed. I, I, I probably got rid of half that material because it was much too detailed and it was, it was going to be a, a mammoth biography. And I realized I wasn't going to be able to match Roy Foster's two volume biography of WB Yeats. So I had to go for a different type of book. That's why I decided to do a book on WB Yeats and the Ireland of his time. So in other words, it's a biography of Ireland through Yeats and a biography of Yeats through Ireland. Uh, and so I started work. I, I did a bit of work on it before I left Washington, but I probably had maybe I'd added a little bit to it, but not much. Uh, and then when I was in NYU, I spent a bit of time, but I had a job there. I was teaching, as you know, teaching does take up a lot of time and, and, and energy. And so you have to prepare your talks, which I had to do because I hadn't, this was a, a course I'd never given before. It'd never been given anywhere before. Uh, so it, I had, everything I had, I had to prepare everything. I, I spent, you know, maybe two, three days a week preparing my talk for the following week. That was how I worked um, uh, in New York. Um, but I did do a certain amount and I had access to the New York University Library, which is really very good too. Um, and, uh, and, and, but really when I got to Cambridge, Magdalen College in Cambridge, I had no teaching to do there. I, I, I was a fellow. I was a research fellow. So there I, I spent most of my time writing the book. Uh, and doing other things as well, but but I had I, I gave maybe half a dozen lectures during the course of the time I was there. I did a lot, did a few seminars. I did some, I organized the conference, so I, I did other things. But but I, most of my time was available to do the research on um, Pilgrim Soul. Uh, mm. So I was very glad to have 
to make the deadline on that. As I say, it wasn't quite as, yeah, even the, you know, the last kind of few weeks weren't as, weren't quite as intensive as, as, as they have been. I, I think I've learned how to, uh, how to write my kind of book, which is a book aimed at the good reader who's not an academic. Yes. And also, I mean, it's an interesting um, argument, I suppose. You know, part of the argument seems to be around the fact that um, Yeats and the way that he grappled with and had issues with the Ireland of his time was what made him the poet that he was, the artist that he was. Well, you're you're, you're a very good academic because you actually uh, expressed my my point of view more clearly than I could do it. Uh, (laughs) But that's exactly what I was trying to say in that you see, it's always been a, a puzzle to me. How could somebody who wrote about I will arise and go now and go to Inish Free and a small cabin bill there of clay and wattles made, how could that man end up writing about uh, old bottles, old refuse, the sweepings of the streets? Uh, I must lie down where all ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. I mean, how did how did that early poet, that dreamy romantic poet, end up as a, a poet that could match T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound in his kind of modernist language. And my answer to that question is that part of the answer is Ireland, that it was Yeats's um, association with an immersion in Irish affairs that kept his poetry developing. And the fact that he wrote his probably his most highly regarded poems in the 16 years after he won the Nobel Prize, you know, among school children, uh, sailing to Byzantium, uh, meditations in time of civil war, under Ben Bulban, uh, Municipal Gallery Revisited, uh, you know, uh, all of these poems were written in the last 15 years of Yeats's life when he could easily have taken a lap of honour and travelled the world as a celebrated Nobel laureate, reading his old greatest hits, reading his... Lake Alevinish free and when you were old and uh, he, he wishes for the clots of heaven. But he didn't. He kept on working. And, and on the day, he, the day before he died, he was still writing a poem. He finished the death of Kulkhullen week, a week or so before he died. So he was creative to the very last moment. In my lecture last night, I, I was talking about Yeats as a public man. The fact that he came back to Ireland after the Easter Rising and spent most of the last 20 years of his life living in Ireland. When the previous 30 years, he'd basically been living in London. It was, it was a Londoner. Mm-hmm. He, it was London Irish for most of his life. But at the age of 50 plus, he brought his young family back to Ireland when the War of Independence was raging. And during the, the, the Civil War, when he was a target for, or could have been a target for Republicans, who may not have been impressed by his support for the Irish Free State and the pro-treaty cause. So that commitment to Ireland, which made him a public man in the 1920s and into the 30s, I think was part of what made him the poet he is today. Because I make the point that, that he was fortunate to be living in a country where fascism was a bit of a, a joke, where the blue shirts were a, a very uh, short-lived phenomenon that fizzled out very quickly. I, I would have feared for someone like Yeats, who had these aristocratic, conservative leanings, 
had he been a German poet or a French poet or an Italian poet or a or, or a um, or or a Spanish poet, you know, far better to write about his Arthur Griffith and uh, Kevin O'Higgins and uh, and um, Casement and and Lady Gregory and those characters who were in the municipal gallery where he said you could trace Ireland's history could be traced in their faces. Better to write about them than to write about the rogues gallery of European tyrants of the 1930s. So I think living in this kind of rather modest backwater as it was at that time was probably an advantage to Yeats in that his, his, his authoritarian proclivities didn't get that far. Had he been a Spanish, Italian, German, or French poet, he could have got himself into some very hot water and his reputation would have been destroyed as a result. Mm. Had he written poems about, about Franco or, or Mussolini or Hitler, um, you can imagine we wouldn't be reading Yeats today, that's for sure. Yeah. And just to bring it back to Waterford, because I know we're, we're running out of time now. So just a final question um, about Thomas Francis Marr, because I know you've expressed an interest in perhaps yeah. writing about him. What is it about him that you think is interesting and, and warrants, you know, further exploration? Well, there's a very good book on him um, called The Immortal Irishman, um, uh, which is an, a cracking good read. I mean, it's like almost like a novel, uh, but it's a biography. But it's, but, and it's very good, and it's and it's it's sold well, and it's still available in print, and it's it's really worth reading, I think. But the writer is an American, an Irish American, um, I think California based, and I think his understanding of maybe Irish history is a bit sort of um, vague and romanticized. Uh, I have the advantage of being an Irish historian who understands Irish history pretty well. I think um, I've been a specialist in sort of 19th century and 20th century Irish history all my days, um, you know, even though I've been a diplomat, but I've also kept kept up my interest in that topic. And I've written a lot about 19th, 20th century Irish history over the years and continue to do so. Um, so I just see Marr as, what fascinates me about Marr is that he's the only person, the only Irish person that I know who is memorialized on two continents because you have the memorial in Waterford, of course, down opposite the tower, between the tower and Reginald's tower. And you have a memorial in Helena, Helena, which is the capital city of the state of Montana. And that's an extraordinary achievement for someone to be, to be that significant in two countries, in Waterford and Montana, a long way away from each other. And that's a kind of a, an expression of the life that Marr lived. And I just happened to have followed in Marr's footsteps, modestly, of course, but, you know, I was born and brought up in Waterford, so I understand the Waterford background. Uh, I spent time in Australia. My wife's Australian, so I've read Australian history and I know about the, you know, the convict transportation issues and so forth. And the time he spent in Tasmania has interested me in that regard. And then I, I've been in America and I visited most of the battlefields of the Civil War where Marr fought. And Marr actually is also memorialized on the battlefield at Antietam in, 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 in Maryland, where the Irish memorial there has an image of General Thomas Francis Marr. And that, I think, is a remarkable achievement for mm. any person in any one life. And remember, Marr died when he was just 44 years of age, right? <laughs> so all of that renown was packed into less than five decades of life. 
And that, yeah. to me, that's a fascinating story. And I just think maybe the Young Ireland movement is perhaps um, not as well understood as it ought to be in that, you know, it was the Fenian movement that finally delivered Irish independence. The Home Rule Party, I think, gave us our political culture, which we have to this very day. Uh, and then the cultural nationalists, you know, the Gaelic League and the GAA are still part of, of, of Irish life today. And to some extent, the Young Irelanders have kind of faded into the background. And I think a study of Thomas Francis Mars as an Irish patriot, as a, a, a convict transportee to Australia and as a civil war general in America would make for an interesting study that I hopefully I will have time and the energy to undertake at some stage. Well, I do not doubt for a single second that you're going to have the energy. Uh, the only thing that you might be lacking is the time because it sounds like it's the most, uh, it's the busiest retirement in history. But I better let you go because I know you have planes to catch and places to go and people to see. And I just want to say thanks so much, Daniel, for, um, for joining us. It was really good of you to take the time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you.